Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 91, Mystagogic Patchwork, Esoteric Writing, and Clemens Stromates. In this episode, we are delighted to come to grips a little bit with what we described in episode 90 as the single most esoteric document surviving from antiquity, the Stromates of Clement of Alexandria. Now we have to back up that audacious statement. In fact, however, we're interested in Clement's esotericism as a whole in this and the next episode, so we're going to be bringing in a few other texts as well. Still, the Stromates will be our main focus, and as we shall see, there is more than enough there to be getting on with. Entire books, big books, have been devoted to the subject of the Stromates without exhausting its contents nor its interpretive potential. Indeed, while there is an old translation into English of the entire Stromates, that of Robertson and others in the Christian series, the Anti-Nicene Fathers, we still lack scholarly translations of the whole work. This is not because it's uninteresting, but rather because translating the Stromates requires a mastery of pretty much the whole scope of learned literature available to a widely read philosopher of the second century, and a deep knowledge of Philo of Alexandria, and a deep knowledge of early Christianity, its many heretical and non-heretical flavors, and so forth. This book is rich. So rich, in fact, that we've decided to split our discussion of Clement's esotericism in the Stromates across two episodes. In this episode, part one, we shall discuss the general layout of the book, discuss the extraordinary way in which Clement frames his own esotericism in the Stromates, and give the reasons he gives for being so esoteric. We shall be discussing Clement's practice of esoteric writing, in other words. In the next episode, part two, we shall dive into Clement's construction of multiple esoteric wisdom lineages and the extraordinary methodologies of esoteric reading that he applies to those lineages in order to excavate the truth. So let's begin by introducing the book, its structure, and some of its peculiar characteristics, and then we can proceed to get seriously esoteric. Stromates, as we've mentioned earlier, are patchwork quilts, or just patchworks in Greek. The full title at the head of the manuscript can actually be translated, First of the Patchworks of Clement of Gnostic Notes According to the True Philosophy. Eusebius gives a nice little summary of the book in Book 6 of his Ecclesiastical History, and this helps explain where the title is coming from. In Ferguson's translation, Eusebius says, quote, In the Stromates, he, that's Clement, in the Stromates he has composed a patchwork, not only from Holy Scripture, but from the writings of the Greeks, recording anything that seemed useful in their views, expounding generally held opinions alike from Greek and non-Greek sources, and correcting the false doctrines of the leaders of heresy. He unfolds a wide area of research and provides a project of considerable erudition. With all of this, he includes the theories of philosophers, so that he has made the title Stromates appropriate to the contents. He uses in this work evidence from the disputed scriptures, the so-called Wisdom of Solomon, the Wisdom of Jesus, Son of Sirach, the Epistle to the Hebrews, the Letters of Barnabas, Clement, and Jude. He mentions Tatian's Oratio ad Graecos, Cassian, the author of A Chronological History, and the Jewish writers Philo 
Aristobulus, Josephus, Demetrius, and Eupolemus, all of whom may show in their works that Moses and the Jewish people antedate Greek antiquity. This writer's works mentioned here are packed with a great deal of useful learning. In the first volume, he speaks of himself as very close in succession to the apostles, and promises in the work a commentary on Genesis. End of quote. By the way, we don't have the commentary on Genesis, which is very sad. So, the patchworks are a patchwork in one sense, in that they bring together a number of different cultural strands. Greek philosophy and other learning, Jewish and Christian scriptures, including some interesting extra-canonical ones, which Eusebius names, works of history, so on and so forth. Eusebius actually misses out stuff like the Greek dramatists, Neopythagorean number speculation, the lore of the mysteries interpreted philosophically, and much more. But you get the idea. Clement is a very learned magpie, and he's synthesizing this vast amount of knowledge available to a 2nd century Alexandrian into his idea of a philosophic Christian synthesis. A patchwork. So far, so good. However, there is another way in which this document is a patchwork. And this has to do with esotericism in its purest form. But before we move on to this, I think a run-through of the very basics of the book's complex structure might be helpful. So we're going to summarize the Stromatis from books one through seven. Just keep in mind that we're leaving out an unbelievable number of twists and turns along the way in this summary. The book is famous for its lack of structure, which is, as we shall see, completely intentional on Clement's part. In fact, this is a lack of obvious structure. There is a far subtler structure running through the book than casual readers will perceive, and this is by design. But proceeding, in book one, of the Stromates, Clement sets out the relationship between Greek philosophy and Christian truth. God is the origin of all good things, philosophy included, so we should not scorn philosophy. But history shows us that the Jews were around long before the Greeks, and that the chief influence on the development of Greece was Jewish culture. Clement, in fact, gives a whole timeline in this book. The world is created in the year 5592 BCE, if anyone is interested, and Jesus is born between the years 4 and 2 BCE, which shows, among other things, that Moses was the Ur philosopher. The book ends discussing the origins of human language and the possibility that Plato learned from Moses. In book 2, we have a discussion of faith, pistis, and philosophical reasoning, arguing philosophically as well as through an appeal to scripture, that faith is the more important of the two, because it leads to divine wisdom, which is of a higher order than mere human wisdom. This is not to say that argumentation and proof are not important, but they are not the final goal of the Christian philosopher. The scriptures are a complete philosophy, the interpretation of which can be aided by human reason. Reliance on faith is not a philosophical cop-out, because all logical systems ultimately rely on unprovable axioms so that no one can really function without faith. Recall Clement's rather nuanced and philosophically rich definition of pistis, faith, which we discussed in episode 90. This isn't just belief that the Bible is true, although that is one of the meanings of pistis. This is also the natural assent that humans give to self-evident propositions like tautologies. If I cannot argue with a statement, I am myself, this is because of pistis. I just know that it's true. It's just self-evidently true. 
So here Clement is making actually very powerful epistemological arguments against the claim that one could possibly do without faith and rely entirely on that which can be proven. Clement denies this, and folks, he's right. Whether it follows that the Bible is true, I'm going to leave to the listener to decide. But the basic epistemological statement that no one has a complete system of philosophy that doesn't at some point rely on axioms is absolutely spot on. Book three deals with asceticism, the denial of bodily pleasures, and also with sex and marriage. His approach is kind of moderate. Celibacy is great, but only men who happen to be uninterested in women should go for celibacy. Sex within marriage for the purpose of procreation is also a great good. And he attacks various radicals like Christians, especially the ones that many scholars would be happy to call Gnostics, who oppose procreation altogether. However, Adam and Eve's original fall was in fact due to their having succumbed to sexual desire for each other. So it's not fair to say that Clement is sex positive, as they say nowadays. He argues against Christians abandoning their families to be desert ascetics, um, which stems from Luke 14, 25-27, denying that Jesus would have contradicted the precept to honor thy father and thy mother, which is found in Exodus in the Ten Commandments. So he's taking a middle position. Sex is a good thing because it leads to more people being born, which is you know one of the blessings that God has given to humanity but you have to do it in the right context, heterosexual marriage. In book four, Clement turns to the spiritual elite, martyrs and Gnostic Christians. They have conquered fear and death. However, Clement is critical of those who actively seek to become martyred, arguing that they are undervaluing God's gift of life. Jesus is the perfect exemplar of love and sacrifice, and the Gnostic is the one who is with Jesus. Incidentally, this is an interesting window on what was going on in the second century. There were persecutions happening, and there must have at least been a f some people, Christians, running up to the Roman authorities shouting, I'm a Christian, kill me. No, kill me, I spit on the statue of the emperor, this sort of thing. The Romans will have viewed this as crazy fanaticism, as will, no doubt, a number of more sedate Christians. And Clement is here saying, guys, stop it. Don't try to get killed. Clement then goes on to give a rather late description of the organization of the Stromates and the purpose of the work. So this is basically an introductory passage to the Stromates, but not where we normally find introductions, i.e. at the beginning, and it's a kind of esoteric statement of intent to which we shall return in a moment. We then learn that the Marcionites may become martyrs, but it doesn't count because they deny the divinity of God, that is Christ. See episode 84 of the podcast on the Marcionites, Clement then swerves radically, one of many such swerves, and starts talking about the epistemological problems inherent in theological belief. God's existence cannot be tested or proven because the Logos reveals rather than argues. And although Christ was visible as a human being, the nature of God himself remains hidden. We then learn that God is eternal, uncreated, and so on, in a seminal passage of Christian apophatic language, and God is the universal first principle along the lines of Platonist philosophy. Meanwhile, Clement has introduced in this book the interpretation of Ezekiel 44.9 and 25-27, to 27, 
wherein he deploys some crazy arithmological interpretation, reading the Jewish tabernacle as a very, very complex image of the universe and the human salvation within the universe. Great stuff, which we shall be discussing in the next episode on Clement's esoteric reading, because this is a real tour de force of arithmological excavation of a text, which, aside from having a bunch of numbers in it, really doesn't seem very promising for an image of reality. But with the power of arithmological esoteric reading, it becomes an amazing source for this kind of knowledge. Now, in book five, Clement gets seriously, seriously esoteric. He continues with the discussion of the possibilities of human knowledge, emphasizing the interdependence of faith and knowledge, pistis and gnosis, and then discusses reasons why one would wish to veil the truth with symbola, a passage which we shall also discuss next time, as it contains some juicy esotericist paradoxes. He explains and emphasizes that knowledge of God can only arise when the believer's moral faults have been purified, which is a common Platonist trope and part of the kind of graded approach to salvific gnosis, which we shall discuss further in this episode. He then gets into the problems of immaterial stroke spiritual realities versus material ones. God is immaterial and thus cannot be known through materialist ways of thinking, while Christ, although he was incarnated, must also be understood spiritually in order that we truly grasp his significance and what he was all about. In book six, we learn more about the Gnostic, that is the Christian Gnostic, um, Clement's spiritual elite. The true Gnostic must be a polymath, able to combine knowledge from different fields. And we assume this is what Clement is doing in the Stromate. So he's not calling himself a Gnostic, but clearly he sort of acts like he belongs to this spiritual elite. Clement then turns to arithmology as a tool for esoteric interpretation. Great stuff, we'll come back to it in the next episode. Sacred history is revisited, and we learn again that the Greeks, even the poets, plagiarized the Jews, which is why they often tell the truth. He then turns to sin and damnation, arguing that Adam was not created perfect, ooh, problematic theologically, but anyway, but he was given the potential for developing perfection. Hold up. No original sin doctrine here. This is a different world of Christianity than we find in Catholicism after St. Augustine. And Christ's promise of salvation is universally available to anyone who accepts it, even those condemned to hell. Now, this is interesting stuff, and we're going to come back to it when we discuss the problem of universal salvation, which also crops up in origin in the third century, and we shall discuss that under the rubric of what are the esoteric doctrines hidden within the Stromates, because I think that's a pretty strong uh, candidate for one of those. Universal redemption in a church which was pretty set on condemning certain sinners to eternal hellfire. Last but not least, and not really last either, we have Book 7 of the Stromates. The Gnostic Christian is bigged up with lavish use of Platonic quotations. Clement attacks the anthropomorphic traditional gods of Mediterranean religions. Echoing Socrates, Clement argues that no one willingly does evil. Anyone who does evil is simply ignorant of what is good. 
And then he goes into a long discussion of contemporary factions and schools of thought, or heresies, within the church. Now, as we know, or if we don't know, see our special episode on Clement's texts for the details, there were originally eight books of the Stromates, and there is a problematic sort of excerpted eighth book which survives, but no one knows exactly what to make of it. Or rather, everyone thinks they know, but no one can agree on what to make of it. This book, which is a is a kind of series of abbreviated fragments or extracts, deals with epistemological problems in many fascinating ways. Now that is our quick summary of the Stromates. I, for one, like to have a basic framework like that in mind when I kind of start to pick bits out of a work just to get a picture of the, the grand scheme of things. But if you're like me, even if you ran through that summary four or five times, you still wouldn't really be able to get it straight in your head because there seems to be a distinct lack of a kind of story arc <laughs> to it. That is intentional, as we're about to discuss. Now, we've left out mountains of cool material, and there are swerves within swerves within the Stromates. It's full of philosophical thought, full of scriptural exegesis, and also full of what we might anachronistically call more occult knowledge or folkloric ideas. Secondly, note the way in which the key passages of esoteric methodology, the beginning of Book 4, all of Book 5, and the cool arithmological material in Books 4 and 6, this really, really heavy esoteric stuff is scattered, seemingly at random, throughout the middle of the Stromates, rather than, say, at the beginning, which might seem to be a logical place to put that sort of material. This has significance. And this brings us to esotericism in the Stromates. Let's look at this from a few perspectives. Firstly, let's get an idea of Clemens' method, the mode of esoteric writing he employs to hide the truth while revealing it simultaneously. Then we're going to discuss the reasons he thinks esotericism is necessary. Why should you write esoterically? Why not just put the truth out there to everyone? After all, Christians are all Christians. They should all have access to the truth, right? In the next episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the esoteric lineages that Clemens constructs, which are, as we know, a very common thing to construct for an esoteric author. But Clemens are really uniquely encompassing and also uniquely complex. Then we'll turn to his hermeneutics of finding truth hidden esoterically within all manner of books, from the Bible to Homer to Euripides to the ancient sayings of the Pythagoreans to Philo to the Jews, etc. Now, what about the esoteric method of the Stromates? In fact, here we can do worse than to go back to Photius, our 9th century Byzantine ecclesiast whom we last met disapproving of Clement's hypotyposes or outlines in the strongest terms. Let's look at and see what he has to say about the Stromates, which he also dips into, although at the end of this passage he does say that most of the Stromates is sound theologically, but it does have a few mistakes in it. Now, in other words, most of it passes muster as orthodox, but there are a couple things which the orthodox Photius does not approve of. However, the beginning of the passage is what we're interested in here. Quote, The miscellanies in eight books, that's another way of translating stromates, contains an attack upon heresy and the heathen. The material is arranged promiscuously and the chapters are not in order. The reason for which he himself gives at the end of the seventh book in the following words, quote, 
Since these points have been thoroughly discussed and our ethical formula has been sketched summarily and fragmentarily as we promised, teachings calculated to kindle the flame of true knowledge being scattered here and there so that the discovery of the sacred mysteries may not be easy to any one of the uninitiated. End of quote. And so on. This, he himself says, is the reason why the subject matter is so unsystematically arranged. End of quote. So we had a quote within a quote there, but I assume it's clear what was going on. Photius quoting Clement. Now, Photius is onto something here. Clement himself tells us that he is intentionally writing in a mixed-up style, quote, so that the discovery of the sacred mysteries may not be easy to any one of the uninitiated. End of quote. The fact that Photius found this explanation at the end of book seven is all part of the method. By placing the statement of intent at the end rather than the beginning, Clement is automatically keeping it from the casual reader who might start from page one, read 20 pages, and then get really tired and put the stromatase down, never to pick it up again. This book is not for those people. This is for those who, at the minimum, are willing to invest a lot of time in reading and thinking through what's in there. But I'm actually departing from the text. I'm saying careful readers, but what Clement actually says at the end of Book 7 is, so that the discovery of the sacred mysteries may not be easy to any one of the uninitiated. In other words, he's not just talking about careful readers. He's talking about an initiated elite, which is something quite different. Now, there are many passages like this in the Stromates, where Clement explicitly states that what he is doing by scattering his own work in this way is for purposes of maintaining a kind of public esotericism. That's what we have to call it, right? He's writing a book for public circulation, which hides its own contents in certain matters from those who are not worthy to read them. We can cite book four of the Stromates, the passage near the beginning of the book, which we mentioned earlier in our summary. This is in Robertson's translation. Quote, let these notes of ours, as we have often said, for the sake of those that consult them carelessly and unskillfully, be of varied character, and as the name itself indicates, patched together. Passing constantly from one thing to another, and in the series of discussions hinting at one thing and demonstrating another. For those who seek for gold, says Heraclitus, dig much earth and find little gold. But those who are of the truly golden race, in mining for what is allied to them, will find much in little. For the word will find one to understand it. The miscellanies of notes contribute, then, to the recollection and expression of truth in the case of him who is able to investigate with reason. End of quote. Now this is public esotericism at its absolute finest, and it is apt that Clement cites Heraclitus in this context, the riddling philosopher, see episode 19 of the podcast on him. But unlike Heraclitus's gold miners, the golden race of Gnostic readers, through the use of Clementine hermeneutics, will be able to read the nuggets of esoteric teaching scattered throughout the Stromates and bring out of them a rich flowering of Gnostic truth. They will find much in little, able to spy a deep theological teaching with many ramifications in, say, a single line of scripture, as Clement so often does. Now, an influential modern theory of esoteric writing was put forward by the controversial German-American thinker Leo Strauss. We've mentioned Strauss before in the podcast in the context of Plato, of Philo, and of Numenius. His book, Persecution and the Art of Writing, first published in 1952, is the sort of major exposition of this theory of esoteric writing, collecting in a polished form a lot of articles he published 
on what we would call public esotericism from many decades previous. Strauss's theory, in a nutshell, is that an author who has reason to think he may be persecuted for writing the truth on various matters can have recourse to an intentionally scattered style of exposition, in effect hiding his controversial doctrines in plain sight, where they will only be picked up on by his chosen audience, what Strauss terms the true philosophical reader. Now, Strauss uses many examples of this. Moses Maimonides, the influential Jewish medieval philosopher, is taken as a case study in the book Persecution and the Art of Writing. Maimonides' book, The Guide for the Perplexed, is written for Jews, and it lays out a philosophically justified form of Judaism, wherein all the ritual obligations of the Jewish life, so stuff like keeping kosher, which might seem a bit arbitrary, are in fact philosophically sound things to do because they have inner meanings and so on. And we, the Jews, should do them. Philo of Alexandria had, of course, pioneered this approach to Jewish ritual obligations in the first century, and both Philo and Maimonides discuss circumcision, for example. And Ketris Parabus, they both basically argue that it serves a valuable purpose because it lessens sexual pleasure for men and thus makes Jewish men less enslaved to the bodily reality and more focused on the transcendent, more focused on God. Incidentally, we have no evidence that Maimonides knew Philo. Philo has no afterlife in Judaism, really. But they came to the same conclusion. Strauss also reads Plato in this way. Not to do with circumcision, but to do with writing esoterically for fear of persecution, and a number of other authors. These authors aren't saying what they truly mean on the surface level, but the philosophically acute student of these authors can excavate the true meaning through careful reading and reassembly of the relevant nuggets of truth scattered here and there throughout the text into the intended subtext. Now here is the thing about Strauss. His theory of interpretation is almost always unfalsifiable. Strauss's reading of Maimonides is that Maimonides doesn't actually think the Jews need to follow all these ancient Jewish customs. In fact, the philosophic Jew can leave out all that stuff because it's a waste of time. However, he can't just come out and say that, of course, so he wrote The Guide for the Perplexed as a coded manual for Jewish philosophers. Okay, Maimonides is to this day a major authority in Judaism, and no rabbi reads him as secretly telling the Jews that the law is a bunch of hooey. Or maybe they do read him that way, but they certainly don't teach their uh, synagogue parishioners that that is what Maimonides is teaching, I guess. But okay, to Strauss's mind, this just means that Maimonides was an exceptionally gifted practitioner of the art of esoteric writing. In effect, ensuring that his elite message of philosophic Judaism would survive and be read, sort of waiting for the right reader the right philosophical readers to come along in each generation and discover the true meaning and free themselves from stuff like having to keep kosher because that's not philosophically significant. Okay, what about Plato? Here things get pretty extreme. Plato's Republic is in fact, according to Strauss, an exposition of a kind of Machiavellian political ethic. Thrasymachus, who early in the Republic argues that true justice is in fact the law of the strong getting away with whatever they can get away with and the weak having it done to them, is in fact the hero of the work. And everything that Socrates says is misdirection. Okay, I'm caricaturing Strauss's position here a little bit, but he kind of does say that. 
Now, I can't speak on Maimonides, although learned scholars of Judaism with whom I've spoken have thought that this was a plausible reading of Moshe ben Maimon, but I have never met a student of Plato who really thought that the view of Thrasymachus and the Republic was the esoteric true teaching of the Republic, and I find it wildly, even hilariously, improbable. Now, no one can agree on what the Republic means, as listeners to the podcast will know, but I think it might be safe to say it doesn't mean the exact opposite of what Socrates is saying throughout. At any rate, as we see again and again and again in the study of esoteric hermeneutics, the problem with opening the doors to esoteric interpretation is, that is, the search for unstated subtexts, is that how can you know when to close the doors? What are the rules? As we saw in episode 78, Numenius of Apamea actually read Plato in a somewhat similar way to Strauss, theorizing that Socrates' death at the hands of the Athenians had inspired in Plato a certain understandable reticence about broadcasting his true philosophical views. And let's face it, Plato probably would have thought twice before writing anything too controversial, having just seen his teacher executed for the crime of annoying the ruling junta. And this is why Plato writes esoterically, according to Numenius. But of course, and here's the problem, the esoteric meanings excavated by Numenius bear absolutely no resemblance to the esoteric meanings excavated by Strauss. For Numenius, Plato is secretly teaching a Pythagorean doctrine of three primordial gods who are intellects, or noes, while Strauss sees him as a closet pragmatist and proto-atheist. So you can see that there are serious problems with reading in a Straussian manner, and because Straussian meanings tend to be absent from the literal text, in other words, you cannot just say, here's the bit where the esoteric teaching is given, but rather, if you add up all these fragments in a certain way, you'll come out with the esoteric teaching, which is never fully stated. You cannot prove them or disprove them. And you might ask yourself whether Numenius might not in fact have been a more sensible reader of Plato than Strauss. However, Clemens Stromates is the only place in antique esoteric literature that I've been able to find that we can say is without any doubt an exercise in roughly Straussian esoteric writing. It's provable. Clement tells us what he's doing. He's scattering the truth. So it has to be reassembled by a philosophic reader. Now, Clement is not particularly worried about persecution. In the second century, Christians weren't yet persecuting each other very much. It was the Romans you had to look out for. And the Romans could not care less about your Christology or whether or not you secretly believed in metempsychosis or your doctrine of matter. But despite Clement's motives being different from Straussian motives, in other words, he's not worried about being persecuted, his method is precisely that laid out by Strauss. And we know this because in passages like the one we have just quoted, he tells us so. Incidentally, another form of Straussian esotericism that is very common in modern times and really does have to do with persecution is the kind of writing we find from the Soviet Union. Scientific writers and others will write books which have absolutely nothing to do with Marxist-Leninist orthodoxy. And all you had to do, not under Stalin, but later, was have a three or four pages right at the beginning of the book where you talk about how Marx, Engels, and Lenin are the key to all human knowledge. And then you can just proceed to forget about them and write the rest of your book. And it seems like the censors never really got past page four. So 
that was arguably another form of Straussian esotericism that we really do see in context of escaping persecution. Now, this self-described esoteric methodology on Clement's part is one of the reasons that we here at the Schwepp maintain that the Stromates is the esoteric document from antiquity par excellence. Now let's turn to Clement's reasons for writing this work of public quasi-Straussian esotericism. If it's not persecution that he's worried about, what is he doing? There are a few reasons I think we can point to here, and again, we're fortunate that in the Stromates we find an absolute goldmine of stated methodological reasons for why you want to write esoterically. In other words, Clement tells us not only that's what he's doing, but he tells us why he's doing it. First of all, we have the graded approach to Christian teaching, which we've already discussed in episode 90. As Clement says already in the Paedagogos, his sort of most basic uh, work of Christian instruction, quote, eagerly desiring then to render us perfect by a salvific gradation, the Logos, entirely a lover of mankind, makes use of a beautiful dispensation suited for efficacious discipline, first exhorting, then training, finally teaching. Protrepon, pedagogon, ekdidaskon. End of quote. All Christians are doing the right thing because they're being Christians, but there are levels to this game. Once you've become a Christian, you've been protrepticized, you then need to learn how to do it right, you need the basics, that's the pedagogy, and then you need to purify your ethical life so as to live in accordance with the scriptures and the example of Christ, at which point you can become a Gnostic. And note that Clement reads this ethical level as a necessary first step towards becoming a Gnostic, which is a common topos in some middle Platonism and more explicit in late Platonism where there is a definite stage of moral purification through acquisition of the virtues, or the lower virtues, before you can get to the noetic stuff, the direct perception of higher realities. Or, as Clement would put it, before you get to gnosis. So Clement in this, and as in so many other things, really seems quite uh, Neoplatonist before Neoplatonism. Now, is Clement an esoteric elitist? Yes and no. While on the one hand Clement's message is the familiar Christian one that salvation is open to all those who choose to accept it, regardless of, for example, matters of class or background or even education, and let us remember here that access to education and thus to leisure and money and slaves and thus an upper class background were prerequisites for the kind of philosophic life envisioned by the Middle Platonists and other Greco-Roman philosophical movements to some extent. So Christianity really was very socially radical in many ways. It is nevertheless the case that Clement sees an elite within Christianity. These are the Gnostics. And it's no accident that he makes use of Plato to establish the existence and character of this elite. Most strikingly, he reads the Gospel of Matthew's statement that, quote, many are called, but few are chosen, in parallel with Socrates' statement in Plato's Phaedo that, quote, bearers of the narthex are many, but Bacchants are few, which is one of Plato's most famous evocations of the mysteries, in this case, the mysteries of Dionysus. For more on Plato's appropriation of the mysteries to philosophy, see episode 34 of the podcast. It's less surprising to see Clement using pagan mysteries as an illustration and support for Christian teachings when we recall that Philo had done exactly the same thing, but it is still striking. An entire episode 
could be devoted to Clement's appropriation of the mysteries in the Stromates. But we will content ourselves with stating that for Clement, Christianity is the mysteries. Full stop. He will attack the traditional mystery cults on various grounds throughout the work, as you might expect a Christian to do, right? But he doesn't simply trample on the mysteries and then walk away laughing triumphantly. He tramples them, but he takes the good bits, salvation in the hereafter, and a graded initiatory approach to access to the higher knowledge. And then he walks away, having enriched Christianity with a major source of cultural and arguably spiritual prestige by being able to say, we have the true mysteries. If you really want initiation, if you really want to, be, to go from being the mortal person doomed to die to the one who has a fair prospect of a better state in the afterlife, you need to be initiated to our mysteries because the other mysteries are false. So the graded approach to wisdom acquisition and a particular form of esoteric elitism are factors in Clement's esotericism. So far, Ceteris Paribus were in familiar Middle Platonist territory, in fact. There is an elite. You can't just get to the truth in one jump. You need a process of paideia or education. So far, so good. But Clement has another reason for writing esoterically, which is particularly second century Christian. He is hugely concerned with refuting people he calls heretics, even though the term heretic doesn't really mean what it comes to mean yet in the second century, because orthodoxy doesn't exist yet as a fait accompli. Nevertheless, there are some Christians and some Christian teachers that he is very much concerned to refute. Here is book one of the Stromates on the danger of spreading the truth too widely. Quote, because great is the danger in betraying the truly ineffable word of the real philosophy to those who wish to speak recklessly and unjustly against everything, and who hurl forth quite inappropriately all sorts of names and words, deceiving themselves and bewitching their followers. In this and in many other places in the Stromates, Clement promotes a strategy of starving the enemy. Do not give the heretics access to the inner teachings, because they're likely to run with them in all kinds of inappropriate directions, like Basilides, like Marcion, like Valentinus, like the Carpocratians, if the Mar Saba letter is to be taken as genuine. In short, only those whose interpretational abilities are directed by the Logos, those who have become true Gnostics, whose reading and hermeneutics are under the personal direction of Christ, in fact, only these people are allowed to mess with the inner doctrines because they alone are guaranteed not to fall into heresy. However, that mention of ineffable is significant and brings us to a wonderful and very common paradox in Clement's esoteric project and in the esoteric projects of later antiquity more generally, if I may say so. One of the reasons that Clement gives us for writing esoterically is that God's essence is ineffable. It cannot be spoken. We're told repeatedly in the Stromates that the Father is beyond essence, epekenatesousias, quoting Plato's Republic 509b, which Justin Martyr had already been doing in a Christian context. Clement tells us that God is both one and beyond the one and the monad, that God is beyond cause while being the universal cause. He is beyond noesis, or any form of cognition, no matter how rarefied, while being noetic at the same time. Here we have Clement's 
apophatic discourse. And in two episodes' time, we will have an interview devoted to the question of Clement's apophasis. So we're not going to get into this subject here in any detail. I do, however, want to point out one or two things. Firstly, Clement thinks that God's nature, specifically in his essence, usia, is ungraspable by humans, even by Gnostics. Now, his usia, I hear you say, gentle listener, didn't he just say he's above usia, that he doesn't have essence? Well, yes, but we're in the territory of via negativa, apophatic theology, and things will always be described as both A and not A, leading to a mental state where we realize neither A nor not A, which brings us closer to the ineffable truth. This is the hidden God, which we've also seen in Middle Platonists, like Philo in the Abrahamic context, and Numenius in the traditional context. God cannot be known. Now, as we've had cause to mention before in the podcast, the term ineffable in Greek, arretos, does not appear in the classical period. Or rather, it does appear, but it means something very different. It doesn't mean ineffable, it means secret, especially used in the context of not revealing the mysteries. It is a cultic term, in fact. Now, sometime in the first century, already in Philo, who's a pioneer in this respect, this term arretos, along with the cognate word aporetos, which means roughly the same thing, gets repurposed to refer not to something which must not be said, but to something which cannot be said. Ideas of cultic secrecy and of ineffability are thus already linked in Greek through the vocabulary, and this flows perfectly into the use of mystery terminology by Philo and Clement to describe the process of trying to come to grips with the highest divine reality. It can be described, this reality, as arretos, unsayable, but when you say that, you're also evoking mystic initiation, as well as the stringent philosophical conviction that it's impossible for humans to grasp this reality. Thus, the unsayable becomes a secret, rhetorically. Now, it's in this overlap between philosophic ideas of ineffability and cultural conventions associated with initiation that accounts, I believe, for the paradox of saying what Clement says again and again in the Stromatase, namely, that the inner teachings must be kept secret because God is ineffable. If God's ineffable, Clement, he can't be revealed by definition. So Clement, why don't you just relax? You can't reveal the secret. Even if you wanted to, you can't. It's impossible. So why does it have to be all mystery-ish and secret? But Clement cannot relax because this ineffability is also at the same time mystic secrecy, which must be protected. Book five of the Stromates must be read with this rhetorical paradox. I'm going to call it a rhetorical paradox because I don't know what else to call it, even though I'm not sure there is such a thing as a rhetorical paradox. Book five of the Stromates must be read with this rhetorical paradox fully in mind because book five is a tour de force of the rhetorics of secrecy applied to the philosophically ineffable. In fact, book five is so good, let's just devote a special episode to it. Okay, on that note of not being able to fit everything into this episode, it is time for us to say goodbye to Clement's esoteric writing project, but only to say hello to the Esoteric Reading Project, which is in constant dialogue with it. Join us next time for part two of this study of the Esoteric Clement on his hermeneutics and the promised revelation of the secret doctrines of the Stromates will also come in that episode. Though, as you might expect by now, these secrets are kind of eternally self-hiding because that's the ineffable nature of God 
And that leads us nicely to the next episode after that, which will be half an hour of silence. No, just kidding. Which will consist of an interview with Henny Fiskoheg, author of Clement of Alexandria and the Beginnings of Christian Apophaticism, where we will discuss this problem of unsayability of God and Clement. Until then, stay aporretoi.